I'm Sharon Brett Kelly and I'm on a bushwalk just outside of Reefton on the west coast surrounded by beautiful old trees and it's pretty misty and cold here so I can't see far but I'm surrounded by native bush and of course that's nothing new here on the west coast because around 85% of the land here is conservation estate or other public land but you can also find pockets of precious native trees or wetlands on private land and that's at the very heart of the big divide between landowners and the government. Today on The Detail, the battle over significant natural areas. They've been contentious since 1991 when councils were told to identify and protect significant natural areas under the Resource Management Act. But now things have taken a step up. The proposed national policy statement for indigenous biodiversity gives councils even greater powers to designate areas with important native ecosystems that are now under threat or facing extinction. Here's the minister in charge of SNAs, James Shaw. What we know is that New Zealand's indigenous biodiversity is in a state of crisis. Landowners worry they could lose more land under the latest plan and feel they're being punished for protecting what's theirs. A government proposal to protect native species on farms is being described as a potential land grab. Quite frankly, they shouldn't be sticking their nose into private property. Farmers are worried that categorising land with native flora and fauna as significant natural areas could force them off the land. Where properties like ours might have had 5% of our land mapped as SNA, we're probably looking somewhere around 30 to 50 some councils aren't happy either. We will be significantly affected by this. There's no money from central government towards this. There's no money from central government towards private landowners. The councils, they're getting wrapped up in straitjackets now. And in effect, this is a land grab by stealth, a land grab by legislation. This is government overreach. But there's more confusion now with the government putting the process on hold after a backlash from Northland Iwi. This is bigger than the foreshore and seabed. Stealing native autonomy. They're saying to us, we're taking it off you, your ngahere. Why? Because you're not looking after it. This is just another way of tahai. We've already got kaitiaki taha in place. The 21st century theft. I want to find out why farmers here on the West Coast feel they're hit harder than most. And I'm meeting Katie Milne, former president of Federated Farmers. She and her husband, Ian Whitmore, have a dairy farm at Lake Brunner. Hi, I'm Sharon. Hi. Nice to meet you. Yeah, same. Yeah. Is that Lake Brunner there? No, that's Lake Kangaroo. Lake Brunner's over that ridge. Okay. Because it's 42 square kilometres. It's a big fella, isn't it? With a couple of other little lakes here, but then mm. this is an SNA in front of us here. Ah, okay. Yeah. Because what? It's it's native. It's Kahikatea. Yeah. And how big is that SNA there? Uh, our one is actually only eight, eight hectares. Right there in their front garden, a stand of precious native bush. So that significant natural area came about from the first round of discovery that the councils were all told they had to do back in the early 2000s from a desktop study. And the criteria then for this area was that there wasn't many kahikatea forests on dock estate. There's lots of protocarp, there's wetlands, you name it, on the west coast is there. But 
one of the um, things that was underrepresented was Kakatea. So the district council got a ecologist to come and have a look for those farmers that would allow that process to happen on their land, which we debated about quite considerably, actually, whether we would or we wouldn't. It was quite contentious, and um, property rights were at stake, and no-one knew what it would mean afterwards, except for that you would be paying rates on land that you no longer had the ability to develop, I guess. Mm. So Dr David Norton came, and Ian and I both went through the forest with him for half a day, and... um, at the end of it, he said it's such a superb piece of bush and the fact that it was still standing after being in Ian's family for nearly 100 years at that stage. His grandfather had chosen to leave it, his grandmother, his um, father and mum had chosen to leave it and we'd chosen to leave it. And the attributes that are in there um, were some different things like dracophyllums, which are normally opening up on the tops, um, lots of mountain cedar as well and um, some other Salary pines and things. He said it's it's really cool. Doesn't meet the criteria, but uh, I'd like to put it forward. We sort of deliberated on that, and well, we didn't have a choice once they've decided they want it. It's mm. going in the process anyway. But we decided to see what conditions we could get put on it that would suit us. Even way back then, somehow I was always trying to think about well, how can this be turned into something that's an asset for us versus a liability. And that's the sort of way I think farmers are seeing this stuff, is that it feels like this is a liability being put on you versus an asset. And, you know, when you've decided to leave something there, to then come along and get something slapped on you, which feels like a penalty, not a reward, is sort of where a lot of people see it. So, yeah, I looked at it, or Ian and I, talked to Doc, talked with the ecologists and the people running the process through the district council and said, well, actually... What if the cure for cancer suddenly gets found in the future in native plants? Or what if we want to diversify and and want to be able to put in a couple of um, tree hut housing or something for accommodation or whatever in the future? We don't know what it holds. Dairying might go through doldrums, you know. Anything could happen. We've got land, we can do things with it. It ended up that we were allowed to, we've got a document signed that we're allowed to take 30% of any saplings and 50% of any seedlings that are in there and we could put a couple of accommodation units in there in the future. So that was a long time ago. That was more than 20 years ago that it was designated SNA. What is happening now? Well, what's happening now is that the um, National Policy Statement on Biodiversity is coming right through that has been on hold for quite a long time, since for that 20-odd years, and... That's the the new assessment that um, everyone's going to have to go through because it never happened right throughout the country previously. There's different things that have happened. There's wetland processes and other aspects, outstanding natural landscapes and the like are in the process as well or have been done. Mm. But the significant natural areas is um, being revisited, if you like, because some councils did it and some didn't. Mm. So now farmers are in an interesting position where... They may have been through the process and been reasonably happy with it, but now they're up for a whole another cut or another set of obligations that might be put on them. And so that you know, has put everyone back into a scary spot yet again for two reasons. You may have already had it done and you might get harsher terms put on you or your council may have chosen to put it aside and not done it and so you still don't know where you're going to be and, and how much the desktop process will take of your property. And... 
what happened on the coast last time was, you know, I do know of a couple of situations where people had bought the property with an intention in mind that overnight that, that ability was gone. So their revenue stream or future retirement scheme or whatever it is is taken away. They haven't started a nursery or built any accommodation on the SNA and now Mill's nervous that those conditions will be stripped in the new round. I certainly think that if these processes are going to go ahead, they do need to talk to the landowners and make sure that they consider all the options and things they might see in the future they want to do. Are you saying that even if it wasn't declared an SNA, you wouldn't have done anything with it? Exactly. We had no plans to clear that or do anything with it, as is the situation for a lot of farmers, is that they've got areas of native that they've or um, wetland or whatever it is that's of interest, that they've protected themselves for their own benefit, for their own personal reasons. And then they do get uh, pretty frustrated with that feeling of someone's decided, well, you guys can't be trusted. Be quiet, boys. Just put those pups out. People on the West Coast are pretty angry about this. They really feel targeted. There's no acknowledgement for the fact that the reason why people can still find these things on farms is because farmers have, in a lot of cases, set it aside, looked after it for generations and are happy to have it there. But so to come in and, um, without any conversation, just be told, well, tough luck, all your property rights are gone, is very disrespectful. And whether you're iwi or farm owner who's owned farm generationally, it just says, well, you guys can't be trusted and um, you will do as you're told. Should we first start talking about this man, Tony Barrett? Tony Barrett. Yeah, yeah. Tony Barrett, because he's kind of media shy, doesn't like to... He was very media shy, yes. Lois Williams is a local democracy reporter on the West Coast. She wrote that Tony Barrett is fiercely protective of his land and his privacy, but he let her tell his story in the hope of drawing attention to what he sees as the injustice of the SNA process. And so what happened? How did you persuade him to talk to you? Well, it's, it's on the coast, I think it's very much about trust and... Um, I was considered trustworthy by one of the councillors who knew him and he volunteered to take me to meet him and sort of vouch for me right. that I wouldn't shaft him in some way. <laughs> Which, so, and, um, so he took me and introduced me and um, he was a, a really lovely chap. He's a really very nice old gentleman. People talk about people on the West Coast as often as being rednecks and so forth and I think when you when you meet some of these people who are supposedly rednecks, they're actually really lovely people, and they're very gentlemanly, and they just have very strong views on certain things, like their own rights to do what they like on their own land, you know. And he was definitely one of those. You went to talk to him about significant natural areas or proposals for those. What was his story? Well, I mean, his story was that his family had had farmed and used this land for two really long generations. I mean, he's in his 80s. And they still had big stands of kakatea. A lot of it, I think, was regen. But they had large areas of native bush and lowlands of kakatea, sort of swamp, which would have been swamp once upon a time. They'd done, you know, sphagnum moss picking there. 
and they'd run cattle. They'd, they'd had various other... There were beehives there. They'd used the land in various ways, and there was still all this forest and bush cover on it. And, you know, his, his feeling was just that the government had absolutely no right to come in and tell him after, like, you know, sort of 80 to 100 years of his family owning this place that he needed to protect it. Well, as far as he was concerned, it already was. Mm. But... The fact is that it was his, and he felt he had a right to do as he wanted to with it. Even though he wasn't going to cut anything down, he wanted to reserve that right. That was his feeling. By designating it uh, an SNA, would that have put more restrictions on what he was doing with it, or was he not doing anything with it anyway? Well, I think he's grazing it, but actually it probably wouldn't have, because... You, you do have existing use rights. I mean, if you're grazing a patch of sort of cut-over kakatea, you can continue doing that. It's just if you want to do something else with it. So he wanted to fell some of it and use the timber. Um, so he wanted to clear some of it and get more grazing. He would need a resource consent, and the chances are he wouldn't get it. You know, and that's, that's what he objected to. So was it the principle of it? Very, the principle much, of very much the principle, yes. Mm. But also practical applications, for instance, that he pointed out. So with sphagnum moss, which it tends to grow in cut-over areas anyway, you know, these are areas that have been kind of wet and they've been, they might have had carcatea on them at some point and then that's felled and then the moss grows. If you keep picking the moss... It keeps growing and the ground stays wet. And what these guys point out is that if you let it regenerate, then the forest or the native vegetation will eventually take over again and it will become dry, right? So they're, they're, their argument is that they are maintaining it as a wetland by continuing the moss picking and getting an economic return from uh, the land by doing that. Because a lot of these landowners, it is the... Sphagnum moss? Well, for a number of them. And this, this was a really big issue when the, the regional council was uh, trying to identify wetlands um, a few years back. Gosh, it must be, I think, 10, 10 years ago now. They left a lot of areas off their schedules, and Forest and Bird challenged this in the Environment Court, and they had to come to agreements on it. And in the end, they did. They reached um, a series of conditions and rules for sphagnum moss gathering, and that was allowed in certain wetlands, and, and that's now written into the plan. Mm. But the SNAs, that's a separate thing altogether? It's a separate process, but SNAs can include wetlands. OK, and, and the farmers, I mean, besides Tony Barrett, I mean, what's been the upshot with him? Has he had to comply, or what's the latest? Well, no, they haven't actually identified the, the SNAs here yet. It's a, it's a process that's about to be um, revealed because there's been a mapping exercise going on, a desktop mapping exercise by scientists, I think it's Wildland Consultants, as part of this process of developing a new district plan for the whole West Coast. Right? Councils have had supposed to have done this years ago, but the RMA was a bit vague about how they should do it, so there have been various, various ways they've attacked it. And they're really having to address it now because the National Policy Statement on Biodiversity spells it out that they must identify and provide protection measures for, I think is the wording, something like that anyway, but identify is the thing. Because in the past, they could put rules in their plans about vegetation clearance, but they didn't have to look at specific areas like a particular 
farm or property and say, well, there's an area on that that we need to protect. You know? mm. So that's, that's what's happening. And in the next few weeks, we're going to see the results of that mapping exercise here on the coast. Is that still going to happen even though, you know, in the last few days the Minister is kind, seems to have put things on hold? Yeah, there has been some suggestion that they are going to tie ho on it for a while. Well, we checked with James Shaw's office about this, and yes, he has suggested councils pause any work they're doing under the National Policy Statement for Indigenous Biodiversity until the document is finalised. 60% of councils have mapped SNAs already. That leaves 40% that are being advised to wait. Williams says West Coast councils have done the work. They've spent the money and they've got the maps. It's a question of whether they're going to be... um shelved, put away, somewhere in a drawer till the fuss dies down or whether yeah. it's going to be actually revealed to the, to the people. And the landowners that you've spoken to besides Tony Barrett, their thinking, is it similar to how he feels about it? Uh, it's not, it varies, you know. I mean, Federated Farms are taking a more moderate approach and people I have spoken to have said, look, you know, we don't think we need to get a, a knickers and a total twist about this. Um, some people are taking that approach that this is my land, I mean, and you can't tell me what to do with it. For instance, the chairman of the regional council in, in Birchfield has said, um, famously said, that he will not let any ecologists onto his land to ground truth any maps of um, SNAs, if he has any, and that it's property theft, and if the government wants to protect the stuff, it should pay in some way, that they should be compensated, because they are losing use rights. Okay, so there's that. That's one extreme, and Mr. Barrett, for instance. But then there are um, there is a more moderate voice, and I think Federated Farmers is part of this, saying, look, you know, um, if you're going to do this, these are some of the complications, government, and these are some of the um, changes we would like to see you make, some of the modifications we'd like to see you make. So they're not um, as extreme. They're not as um, exercised about it, if you like. Mm. And of course, there are the the, the people who. Um, care about native forest and a natural environment and about biodiversity are, are very much in favour of it because they see how much has been lost. And you might think, yes, 85 86% of the West Coast is in the dock estate, but a lot of these areas that are so important, the wetlands that are the lungs of the land, the sponges that soak up the water, um, the lowland podocarp forests, a lot of these areas because they're in that sort of um, that part of the coast that can be cultivated or, or farmed, a lot of them have been lost. Yeah. So a lot of um, landowners that I've talked to over the last couple of days have said that only 12%, around about 12% of the land on the west coast is in private hands. Mm. That's what makes them angry. They say it's not fair. I think they, they're feeling you know, that they've been singled out and um, are being... Uh, expected to carry the can for the um, profligate use of land by the rest of New Zealand, in some sense. Forest and Bird says the aim of the draft National Policy Statement for Indigenous Biodiversity is to resolve 30 years of long and costly litigation over what counts as significant and what protection means. It says it will clarify what's in and what's out cut costs and red tape. It expects there to be support in the process of identifying and protecting SNAs. But Milne says farmers are afraid the cut will be much harsher this time. That is what has been indicated and the sense of certainly more green movement pushing for more and more restriction on farming. So I think there's a 
uh, whether it's founded properly or not, view that the cut could be harder, deeper, wider and encompass more this time than it did last time. Yesterday I was talking to a landowner in France, Joseph, and the feeling is we've done our bit looking after the land, so why should we have to also lose out by having to give up our own land? That is a big uh, burden that the West Coast seems to carry, and when you talk to people from away from the West Coast, they, they really push back and go, well, well, it's the only place that's left, so of course we're going to expect you to, to give up more. How can you even think of doing anything else with it? You know, they get quite affronted by the fact that people own land and, and then think they have a right to do something with it. If these things are of, of national significance, because they are rare and so on, there are going to be areas like the West Coast or parties like Iwi that are going to be more affected than other people because of where they are in the process of development or just the fact they're in a place with lots of those natural areas still intact. But if it's that important, there should be um, a way for real supportive measures to be put in place to help people do this. So some kind of compensation? That, that would be the ultimate, but I know New Zealand seems to be averse to that concept. So that's where maybe these other ways, you know, there's a few entities around trying to um, talk about what would a biodiversity credit look like or, or can they be transferred into a carbon credit and that sort of thing. And whilst farmers don't want to be in an ETS, it raises that other question of if you've got these um, strategic assets, if you like, nationally strategic assets on your farm, how can they be um, seen as something that helps you meet international obligations or domestic obligations for greenhouse gases, for example? And it might not have to be that, that New Zealand taxpayers pay. It might be there's an international audience that wants to pay and buy into this system um, and sponsor these areas, if you like, to remain as they are. Somewhere someone's got to bite that bullet. There's got to be a sensible way to, to look at this and encourage it and for people to see benefit in it versus um, we'll lock it up and take all their rights away and their property rights go with it and someone will get that accreditation anyway, but it won't be the farmer. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can download us free to your mobile phone every day on any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Alexia Russell produced today's episode. Jeremy Ansell engineered it. And thanks to Katie Milne and Lois Williams. And I'll be rolling out more stories from my trip to the South Island in the coming week. Ma te wa.